truly missed opportunity, and I admit it, take full responsibility for the oversight. In this, the first double episode, or two-parter, if you want to call it that, we should have ended last week's production with a, with a massive cliffhanger, the kind of plot twist that could have sparked water cooler conversations around rinks across North America. Something like, will, will Kevin Woodley ditch his mask for a Cooper SK-2000 next week? at his men's league game, or, or is David Hutchinson willing to stand back to back with Alex Ald and let the world know his true height? Some, something really cliffhanger-ish. <laughs> oh, uh, we know we last... could have done. We, we, you could have just said, hey, will, will Pete Smith reveal to the world the role he played in inventing the Vaughn Velocity? Good point. That's another one, but I but I didn't do it. I I, I just went with the with the regular episode. Uh, I start the show with regret now. Uh, it's it's just hanging out there like uh, like Woodley's gloves uh, after he's used them for four years. Uh, welcome to uh, episode twenty of Ingle Radio, the podcast. We are underway. I'm Darren Millard. This is part two of our 2019 Tendy Fest production, featuring interviews from the Hockey Shop Sorcerer Sports gathering of goalies and manufacturers and aficionados from across North America. Uh, the event was held at the end of May, and today we'll catch up with former NHL netminder Alex Ald, who is working in the CCM hockey booth at Tendy Fest. The lead designer of Warrior Goal Equipment, Pete Smith, is with us. He's also worked at Vaughn, as mentioned, uh, Smith, and Victoriaville. Vic Hockey. His stories about making year for Tom Barrasso while still in school will leave you shaking your head. He is an authentic, living, working legend in the gear industry. And we also catch up with Stefan Singlet, uh, who answered our questions about fitness, concussions, rehab, and also takes more than a couple of pokes at, at Kevin Woodley. I guess they play on the same team. Uh, Woodley, you join me now. What's your relationship with Stefan Singlet? You guys are on the same men's league team? Uh, Siggy Singlet. Um, not yeah. on the men's league team, but he takes part in a Friday morning skate, uh, three on threes that I play in the summer. And, he, you know, I mean, he pretty much torches me on a regular basis. As, as let's be honest, at this point in my career, quote unquote career, everyone does. So, yeah, there was a fair, there was a little bit of chirping there. And, I'll be honest with you, when you give up goals the way I do, it's just, especially after, right after he chirped me, the next time we skated, like just got torched. It was like the 4th of July out there lit up so bad. Uh, I probably don't have anything to respond with. But my relationship with him started, though, um, I do have a pretty long history of concussions uh, and uh, TBIs, traumatic brain injuries. And Siggy was one of the guys that uh, kind of put all the uh, pieces back in place. Um, real quick, I had... Uh, I had two really bad ones uh, when I was in university. Uh, got got knocked out playing hockey, and then <laughs> ten days later, got knocked out on a golf course. Literally, got hit in the head in the back of the head with a golf ball from oh, a guy. I know, like honestly, like what a freaking disaster, right? They actually had to bring the ambulance out to um, onto the course and take me to the hospital for like emergency cat scans. Like he ball went forty yards the other way. They're like another inch lower, and you could have killed. It was crazy. Anyways. Uh, I went through an entire decade of migraines. And if you've ever, if you're one of those people that suffered through migraines, I mean, debilitating, turn off the lights, can't do anything for a day and a half migraines, swallow Advil like it's candy migraines. And I managed to learn to sort of manage them, but live with them for 10 years. I had another concussion, got slew fitted, footed in a Tuesday night beer league game, hit the back of my head on the ice and was throwing up into my mask within minutes. Uh, five months later, couldn't even go in the kiddie pool with my young children without throwing up. That's when somebody sent me to see Don Grant and Stefan Sigalette. Uh, they turned lights back on in my head, frankly. The first time after the first treatment, my face tingled for three and a half hours. 
literally it was like lights going back on. I have not suffered a migraine like I used to in close to seven or eight years since oh, then. So okay. that's the history. Hold on. That, that that's that's beautiful and Steph it, it, it's a it's a really cool interview because we do get into the concussions and and training and and different things but how did you get hit in the head back of the head with a golf were you standing in front of the person hitting the the golf ball like how did that happen okay so I'll try and make this and you know me long Please, story yeah, short just, is just not quickly, a good but, thing uh, I was not allowed to golf I was playing a father-son tournament I was not allowed to golf because of the first concussion I was still symptomatic I, there was no way I could have swung a golf club but I decided to caddy for my dad. We were playing at a course called Mount Breton in Shimanus. What quirky little course. One of them is a little par three. And in the par three, it actually has a fence along the side of the tee box because the next par four sort of dog legs around the tee box. I know. And well. yeah, see, so Hutch knows on Vancouver Island. So um, the guy in our group hit, or we'd put our bags over to the left. My dad said, you know what? I think I need more club. So literally, as I was walking to his bag, sort of away from the shelter of that fence to grab, I think I grabbed a seven iron. Can't believe I remember that. don't remember much from that, that time. Um, we hear four. And I just instinctively turn and put my, you know, like you put your, like almost like, you know, put your hands in the air, put my, yeah, went yeah, to yeah. In, yeah, interlock my fingers behind my head and duck. And before I could get my hands together, like flush right off the back at the base of the skull. And... So that tee box is probably 75 yards away, maybe 80 yards. And he was trying to drive the green and hook it around our par three to drive the green. And he just line drive me. It's what you do at a father son tournament. You try, you try and drive a green by playing a, like a nice soft draw. Uh, okay. So at least it was from somebody from a different, uh, different hole, but man, you are just, you are a walking disaster. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a train wreck, man. I am not spending any more time in the same room with you. Uh, Hutch, uh, let's bring you into this conversation. I have a question for you. Would you rather stop pucks or prevent goals? Loved when that question came out. And I think I had the same reaction that so many people have had initially, which is why would you ask a kid a question like this? It's crazy. And then I thought about it. And this was asked at the uh, NHL Combine. It was to, to Spencer Knight. Spencer Knight, the top uh, goaltending prospect. And uh, he said that he was flummoxed by it. And uh, so we actually went and got an answer. Kevin will say the answer to the question. Uh, and it's published uh, this week up at uh, ingoalmag.com. We got the answer from John Stevenson, who is the psychologist and goaltending coach who's worked with uh, Braden Holpe and Carter Hart, very well known in the industry. Uh, as well as uh, Pete Fry, who we've known for many years and works with a lot of top juniors and some pros as well. And uh, we asked them to tell us their thoughts on it. So if you'd like to know, go have a look uh, what the uh, definitive answer is to the question. But but I, I always like to look at things a little bit outside the box. So I had to think to myself, how can this make sense? And uh, I didn't take the psychologist's way of looking at it. I just sort of thought, what's the difference between the two of those things? Stopping pucks, I think most people interpret in a similar fashion. Uh, it's a lot of fun to stop a puck. It's why we all got into the game in every way, shape, and form. Uh, it's an active thing to do, and uh, and it's just, you know, active and athletic, and we all love to do it. But uh, what, what about the second piece, uh, preventing goals? I didn't look at it from the psychologist standpoint of, of being a negative thing or anything. I just really enjoy actually the active part of the game, which is to try and control the game. 
So whether that's trapping a puck, rebound control, playing the puck so that somebody else doesn't get involved in the play, preventing scoring chances by the goaltender's ability to control a game. I see that as preventing goals. I see it as an active thing. I see it as a positive thing. And, and I enjoy that every bit as much as I think a lot of people do as well. So my answer, uh, as I often do, I waffle, I take the middle ground, and I say I really like to do both. You're sitting on that fence pretty hard, you guys. No, Get all soft it was on re- me. No, no, it was ridiculous. It was a ridiculous question. I don't if, think so uh, at all. It's, it's a psycho- psychologist trying to justify their existence in a draft interview. Okay, but I'll tell you what. The sports psychologists we talked to who are two of the preeminent guys from a goaltending standpoint. You remember when Braden Holpe won the cup. First guy he yep. thanked was not Mitch Korn. First guy he thanked was not Scott Murray. First guy he thanked was not Dave Pryor. The first guy he thanked was John Stevenson. And when we talked to Stevenson about this, I mean, I don't want to give away the whole article. As Hutch said, check it out at ingoldmag.com. But like his first answer, it was definitive. And it was without hesitation. He said, as a sports psychologist, language is everything to me. It's not the words we say. It's the picture we put in our mind. For example. what do you get out of this answer? You would understand whether your goaltender works with a sports psychologist, probably for one thing. You would also understand... Language matters to these guys. That's why you work with them. And the answer, to put it in a nutshell, I was going to read it, but at the end of the day, if your answer is about preventing goals, that means if you think I don't give up goals or I don't want to give up goals, that means goals are in your subconscious. If you think about making saves, saves are in your subconscious. If goals are in your subconscious and your subconscious does not understand the word don't, which is what their studies say and what they preach, then you are putting a negative, even though you're thinking, I'm just thinking about preventing goals, not about giving up goals, but you are including a negative, a goal in your subconscious and in your language. And that's how they're arguing. Hey, maybe maybe it's a little much. Maybe it's too much to, I mean, I don't think anybody's not drafting Spencer Knight because he didn't have an answer to this. The kid's legit. The number one, you know, I've only talked to one goalie coach with one organization that doesn't have him way above the top of their list for goalies in this draft. He is everybody's consensus number one. Uh, there is a ton to love about him. They're not asking it because they're not going to draft him, but there's something to the answer. And if there wasn't, why why work with sports psychologists? Why do guys like Holpe and wow. Hart swear swear by this guy? Because the language well, I think we there's use a, there's matters a real benefit to, to it. Yeah, and that and that's the whole point of the question is to understand. But this how the kid is thinks. digging. This is a far reach. You know, when I first first heard it, I I didn't think that there would be a wrong answer. But would you uh, would you rather stop pucks or prevent goals? And I thought, geez, you know, Carey Price stops pucks and Dominic Hasek prevented goals. I, I thought that's where they were going, not the because Price just makes it look so easy, and Hasek was just desperation, always always uh, out, of, out of position, but but making saves, not necessarily out of position, but uh, hey it, hey, uh, and listen, as far, as far as there being a right answer, like honestly, if that's what the, if you think that's what the NHL team's thinking, then maybe you're right there, and maybe maybe there is a right answer. But when you mention Carey Price, it's interesting because Pete Fry in his article, and we'll have a follow up to this. He sent me a bunch of material on how Carey answers answers questions, and one of them was it was a, it was a big moment at the end of a game, and instead of saying. Uh, he, he didn't talk about giving up the goal. He talked about, I didn't come up with the save at the end of the game. Again, it's coming up with the save versus giving up the goal because one leaves a negative, a negative image, a negative thought, a negative sort of transaction in, in our subconscious. And so these guys train everything to the nth degree, including their mind. And so the idea is to train their mind to think about positive things as, uh, 
as Stevenson said, if I tell you, um, you know, don't go down too early. And to me, actually, listening to him talk, the biggest lessons for goalie coaches. If you're constantly telling a kid, don't back in too soon, don't go down so early. Yeah. Like, those are things that what, if you tell a kid, don't go down, what are you thinking? You're thinking about going down. If you tell a kid to hold your ground or hold your edges, be patient. Those are positive. So language matters to these guys. Um, a lot of goalies at the highest level think these guys have been important to their careers. And, and this is a part of why that language matters in their world. And that's all really important stuff. It's really interesting stuff. But I think within the context of the draft, uh, we've all had job interviews before. It's pretty rare in a job interview there's a right or a wrong answer. They're trying to get you thinking. They're trying to get you talking. They're trying to learn a little bit more about you uh, and, and your thinking process. And I think that's perfectly fine to ask a question like that in this sort of context. You want to know more about the person. Of course, I agree. You're not going to draft or not draft based on the answer, but you're going to learn something about them. Uh, you can learn something about the other people you interview. Even, look, some of these teams might never have a shot at drafting them, but uh, they're going to know more about the player as well. Uh, you're getting insight. There's a reason that uh, teams that are drafting 25th, they're still happy to interview the top couple of guys. They get to learn something about them. I would be interested to ask the top 10 goaltenders currently in the National Hockey League that question and see great. their answer and, and, and how much it varied. Uh, not just uh, not just prospects coming up. I just I thought it was a bit of a reach. I think, those. I think we've got a project for next year, Derek. I think you. I think we know it. what Holpe and Hart's answer is going to be, but I think I think you just gave me a project for the next ten goaltenders I talked to. I think I'm slipping this one in. I think you just proved it's a good question too, Darren, because you said you'd be interested to know the answer. <laughs> oh, you know the the worst answer. The worst answer is no answer. If you waffle. Like I, I really believe you should have you should have one side or the other, but just to sit there and go, oh, what am I going to say here? That would be that would be the worst answer in one of those uh, draft combine interviews. Or saying it's a stupid question that wouldn't be a good answer either, Darren. Oh yeah, that's that's what I said too. <laughs> hey, so. listen, you want to know what the best part of all this is other than you know it's given us a nice subject to talk about here. Uh, it allows us to tease a new relationship with John Stevenson and Pete Fry. Uh, at ingoalmag.com. So we're going to be, I was fascinated by this. And as soon as I saw the Spencer Knight thing on Twitter and on social media, I'm like, we have to get their opinion because we knew that uh, this partnership, we were just finalizing it and it was a great way to kick it off. Um, but these guys um, are going to be touring Canada this summer, starting June 22nd and 23rd draft weekend here in Vancouver. Actually, Darren, if you're here for the draft, maybe we got to get you to stick around we'll on the Sunday, Sunday yeah. for the seminar and just as I screwed you up by trying to show you how to play goal on the on the restaurant floor after Tendy Fest, we'll see if these guys can help fix you on the mental side because they've got a one day seminar that they're doing. Uh, they're going to teach you all the sort of techniques um, that they've taught two guys like Carter Hart, like Braden Holpe, um, you know, like Jeff Glass in terms of creating mental images, uh, visualization techniques, uh, reset techniques, how to create confidence. You know, they're there are real active techniques and tools that these guys have developed. It's why they work with the best. And they're going to share that at this seminar. So again, check out ingoldmag.com. We're going to have more stories from them. We're going to delve into this a little bit more, um, but also an opportunity. Uh, if you're in one of the cities across Canada, they'll be going to, uh, to register for the seminar and listen to what they have to say yourselves. I think it is at a time when there is no stone unturned for goaltenders, maybe one of the last pieces for a lot of young goalies that they don't take a look at. And this is a chance to do so in a one day format. 
And I hope it doesn't scare I, anybody a, away, but we'll be there on the Sunday. Good. Well, I'm 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 a big believer that one of the uh the most important parts of goaltending is the reset and and how how you handle that and and not enough of uh emphasis is, is placed on that. So it would be fascinating. I would love to uh, to attend that. Uh do a bit of a twist here. Alex all here's a guy who never really got nervous. I I wish I would have known this question before uh, we had him on, but uh, he's transitioned from NHL goalie to goalie coach. He attended Tendy Fest at Eight Rings of Burnaby at the request of CCM and joined us on stage as uh, as their ambassador. Uh, We then spun it in our own unique direction. And uh, listening to the first 15 minutes of this podcast, you know that we can do that in a very unique uh, way. Uh, This is Ald's second appearance on In Goal Radio, the podcast, which was a much more comfortable return visit than the first. So right now we're pleased to uh, welcome you into our live podcast. I'm Darren Millard, along with the Ingle co-founders, Dave Hutchison and Kevin Woodley. And we're pleased to bring in former National Hockey League goaltender, current Sportsnet analyst, Alex Ald, for our initial interview. Are you nervous? Petrified. Yeah. Yes. Did you get nervous when you played? No, I didn't. Really? Um, more nervous probably before a big game if I wasn't playing, like watching and watching from the bench and having to not have any control of it. But it, playing wasn't really a, I don't know. I think you just come up through the ranks and you develop your coping mechanisms and then you don't actually get nervous when you're older. That surprises me. That's kind of freaky. They, that well, be- I mean, I, I, it probably comes down to your comfort level of what, uh, and you're not comfortable being nervous, yeah. right? No, but I, I think you you develop it and then you get used to it and you realize that that isn't something to be afraid of and it's just normal and that's part of your preparation. So you almost don't register as nerves. So you're, sense. you're coaching now. What do you yep. say to the young kids you're, you're working with to help them get to that point? Because so many kids are, are nervous when they hit into a big game. Absolutely. It, the big thing for me, especially if it's a, there's two different ways of looking at it, the goalie aspect, but then also the team environment. And currently I'm more in a team environment, minor hockey. Um, but it's, it's about understanding how much fun it is and making sure you're enjoying that rather than being afraid of the worst that could happen. Uh, also making them recognize what maybe the worst thing is and really like losing isn't that big a deal, especially for in youth sports. Although some, some parents and people probably make it a bigger deal than it actually should be. For sure. And I think at the end of the day, just reminding them why they play. They, it's because you love the sport. It's fun. Uh, you love competing. And then the, the wins and losses aren't as important if, if that's your, your focus. This environment, this Tendy Fest, you've never been here before. That's right. First time. Uh, what's, what's your observation? I think it's great. I mean, it, it, a couple of things have stood out to me. How knowledgeable the, the players are, the parents. They seem to know everything. All the ins and outs of the gear, the different models, different glove breaks. And I, I just think back to when I was a kid. I mean, I was lucky if my glove and blocker matched colors, let alone brands. And, and uh, it's such a different, uh, I guess, everything about goaltending, the product. It's so different now than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I think that's great. Obviously, all these manufacturers put so much time in the research and development, so much in the marketing. Uh, and, and an event like this, like the hockey shop putting on, is it's awesome that everyone can come together, see everything, test everything out, actually take it on the ice. That was unheard of, too, uh, back when I was growing up. And, and it's, it's such a great turnout. And it's a celebration of the position, really, which is a lot of fun to be a part of. You're, you're here with the CCM booth. You finished yep. your career playing in Reebok slash CCM. 
when you pick up a set of pads these days? Like, do you, is it remarkable to you how far they've come in terms of how light they are and, and yeah, all the technology that goes into it? Yes, but I'm not that old. No, no, it is. It's funny. So, yeah, I, I finished, I wore Reebok uh, Premiere for my last, I don't know, seven years I played. And I look at the, the ones we have here today and they're, it's like the evolution of what I wore and the ones I still have in my garage. It's funny, like I have some of the things like removing the, the knee cradle and all that stuff, which I did on my own, is now part of the pad. Um, so maybe I was ahead of my time. So that's why they don't feel so different. But it, it, it is crazy. I mean, the weight is probably the biggest thing. And, and I can just tell from the materials and the different foams at the protection level in the key spots. Like a look at the arm and chest and having the D3O padding in the right spots is like that would have made a world of difference for me. But it's, they've just continued to push the envelope. And you look at some of the, the pads and the, although it's still a rectangle, I mean, the shapes and, and how everything's so functional and there's so much science behind it all it's it's incredible now i got a question because you've been working we're watching these kids get fitted over at the ccm yep. booth. you've been working over here all day i've been on the ice with you when you were coaching more with nhl goaltenders as clients and you showed me showed them the francois lair test have you taken a stick to any of these kids no and done the Francois Lair test. And for those people that don't know what we're talking about, what, like explain what that would have been like as a pupil playing in the NHL under Francois Lair, how he tested your gear. Well, the, I was told the insurance wouldn't cover it. So I, okay. couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't impale any children with a stick. Yeah. It's generally frowned upon. Essentially, you know, it, it's funny because Frankie would get ripped a lot for teaching the block. Um, but there's definitely a time and a place for it. And what it was, if we are in block, that means you're in a block and nothing gets through you. And he'd have you go down on the butterfly and he'd take a stick and he'd basically spear through. And if the stick could get through your between your elbows and your arm, then you weren't sealing enough. And that's strength, but also equipment. And so how you'd have to make sure everything fit together. And I mean, really, you think back and, and there have been a lot of people who have driven equipment innovation, but Francois Lair is definitely one of them, along with uh, CCM and before that Reebok and the Lefebvre family and the way they developed gear and made sure everything worked together properly. And that I think that's another big aspect is that the interaction of one piece to the next piece. It's not just the glove by itself, it's a glove and how it interacts with the arm and chest and your pants and your pads when you go down and how that all works together. It's a, That's something where I think he was a real driver of that innovation. I think both the insurance companies and the parents here today yeah. are probably happy you aren't doing Definitely. it because I've seen it and it's, it's I mean, it's kind of like the Game of Thrones, though. It's like a battle scene out of the Game of Thrones. You're like literally like just giving her with this stick on these poor guys, and they're just got to hold that hole, no holes. I'm kind of glad gotta we were talking about me yeah. doing a demo here today. I'm kind of glad we didn't. No, well, that's right. You uh, you got to have everything on, like I said, and you got to. There's no sticks here to do it. So <laughs> I, I'd pay extra for you to do that demo. <laughs> Alex, Next year. on Kevin, please. Next year. Yeah. Alex, I'd love to know, just as we're looking back a little bit, us, us older guys often think, if I only knew then what I know now, in your short time away from the game, at least playing, is there anything you look back on and say, just, I, I wish then I know what I know now? What have you learned, whether it's technical or whether it's some gear you had? What's, uh, what's changed for you in the last five, ten years? Oh, well, I, I think anyone thinks that way about life. Um, yeah. But about the position specifically, Absolutely. Like, I, to me, I was never shown how to look at the puck properly, how to address it with my head, how to track it properly. Like this is, 
for me, I, I think, I mean, there's the terminology of it, whether it's head trajectory, tracking, all those things. Like to me, it is such a driver of, of the functional movement and everything we do as goaltenders. That, that would probably be the biggest thing. And I also, I, I think a lot of pros when they retire, they look back and say like, I, in some ways I wish I didn't take it so seriously, but at the same time, there's always that fine line of, of you have to be serious about the job, but you, what you remember the most is all the fun times, right? And so I'm not saying I should have been, you know, out partying more or anything like that by any means, but I just think like you, you get caught up so much in the pressure of it all. And you talk, ask about being nervous, Darren, like, I, I think it's, you get caught up in all of that, like having to be perfect all the time. And partway through my career, I learned a valuable lesson playing alongside Tim Thomas, like perfection was the least important thing. Just go out and stop the puck and keep your head on the puck and watch it. And, and you can be incredible that way. And that loosened me up from a technical point of view a lot, playing with, uh, playing with Timmy in Boston. But really, like, not having to be so set in this structure and rules and laws and just being a little bit more free to just play. And I think that's probably something I wish I had more, more freedom in a way when I played to just go out and react. So do you, do you like do you wish more kids had that? Like as you as you talk Absolutely, about that, yeah. we see especially in Canada and North America and I guess in Sweden now too where the teaching has become so structured. Do you feel like we need to maybe lose some of that? How how do you find that balance for a young kid? If if you're I know you don't let your kid be a goalie or he's smart enough not to be, but if my, he was, my wife, would would, my wife didn't want the pressure of being the wife of a goalie and then the mom of one. So, so yeah. but if you had a, what, what would you, what would the advice be? <laughs> well, uh, that, that's funny because I, I look at it from all different sides, a parent, a former goalie and from a coach. And I, I totally get it that the biggest change you can make is just building a strong technical base as a coach and looking at a kid. But you also say, hey, you want this player to be able to develop their own ability to just feel the game and, and react. So there's a balance to all of that, and and it's it's such a fine line because you need to you need to teach teach the basic elements, skating, um, the movement and the structure and all of that, and, and how to actually make the the save and proper execution. But sometimes I think we we get caught up in too many laws, too many rules, too many set zones, this this that. Whereas at the end of the day, it's about stopping the puck and giving the the, the player the tools to do that, and and. Can they see the puck? Can they get to the puck? Can they make the save? And at the end of the day, are we really, we're caught up a lot in, in so much structure. That being said, the repetition and some automation is really important. So this, it's a fine balance. The biggest thing is that we, we want to teach good athletes how to be good athletes and understanding their body and understanding how to move and how to, how to see something and judge its speed and all that stuff. And it's a balance in all of those things. And, and there's no perfect way. But I think allowing the kids at a young age to figure it out for themselves within proper structure and, and basic technique is an uh, important thing. He's been waiting for those pads a long time, so I'm happy to see you got them. What is uh, puck tracking to you? you? You mentioned that you you never figured that yeah. out. or tra- But there's so many different uses, term, terminology yes. to that. But what, what is that to you? Um, to me, it's looking at the puck through the center of your vision, and and the only way to do You've that. You've lost me already. Well, if you think about, <laughs> yeah. I mean, right now I'm looking at you on the peripheral, right, and I can I know you're there. I can judge your shape, but I I'm not really going to say I want to stop something that's three inches and like that's you know it's it's blurry, right? Yeah. So I want to keep it in my main focus, and and in order to do that, I have to move my head. I can't just move my eyes, and I have I also want to not move out of the way. 
not turn on it and, and open up the net. So it's always about thinking about closing the net space and, and, and it, it ties into all aspects of the game, of the position, whether it's your stance, your movement, your save execution, your rebounds, recovery, everything comes from that. And, and to me, it's, it's really just understanding how to, how to look at it and then almost trying to force that into everything you do. The, big, the thing for me that it's, it's the reason it's, it's crazy, but I was at a camp with, with seven or eight NHL or like minor pro guys, and I asked them all, like, who'd ever been taught how to look at the puck? And none of us had, and I included myself, because I, when I played, I never had even considered it. And we started talking about this a little bit, and, and one of the things that I think is painfully obvious to me is that you should want to look at the thing you're trying to stop but it goes against human nature to want to be hit by something, right? Like this thing is coming fast and it's hard and it's dangerous and you want to move out of the way. So you're constantly fighting that instinct of survival to stop it. And, and so you have to consciously train it. And that is why I think so it's... How do you do that? Hire someone who knows how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which isn't, which isn't easy. But it's... I think in any... In any and what age do you think that that should become something that you focus on day one and i think that should be almost the only thing you focus on really yeah and 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 so it's like any skill you want to learn though a lot of people will tell you hey i'll teach you how to do it but unless they really recognize it and and understand when you are or aren't doing it no matter what it is then are you really learning it and that's that's a that's a tough balance and it's a it's a difficult thing to explain um but I, you know, through through proper execution and proper coaching, then the, the the skill of it gets better and better until it becomes instinctive and natural. And that's essentially what you want to do in any skill: is get it to the point where the athlete is at a point where it's it's more habitual and more natural. Uh, because then, once it becomes habit, then it's ingrained in you, and your your brain has space to learn other new things. I. Uh Last time we had you on, we talked about, and you're, you are actually our first repeat guest of the Ingle Radio podcast. There you go. So there, yeah. That's a big deal. Kind of a big deal. You had me back. Um, we it's talked. a better setting. We were in, the, in your car. Yeah, it was a little more informal. In, in the, the parking garage at Rogers at Arena. Rogers Arena. Yeah. It was a little yeah. more casual. Yeah, was that weird for you? What? To do an interview in somebody's car? No, last time. Okay, oh, I felt like Jerry Seinfeld or something. <laughs> that's more like yeah. it. Yeah. I was just a little less funny. Yeah. Um, we talked about a lot of your former playing partners, but then yes. I remember like a week later on Instagram, we reposted some videos from a Russian hockey account, Vladislav Trechiak doing yes. these crazy drills. And he texted me right away. <laughs> I went to Trechiak school. We should have talked about this. So what do you, as we talk about all these technical elements, what do you remember about being a student at Trechiak school? And what from those videos and those old school Russian techniques could be applied today? Um, first of all, that was a, it was an incredible experience, not, not your car, but the, the school <laughs> it was, um, so when I was drafted to the Ontario hockey league and, and got an agent, my agent's like, yeah, we send you to a, a Vladislav Trechak school every week. This is how much it's changed. Right? Like, so I'm okay. Yeah. I'd been to goalie schools before, but that was a massive deal to me. Went to Toronto for a week for, I guess it was three summers and, uh, it was, it was great. Vladdy's on the ice every day, full gear, not doing the drills with us, but demoing like movements and, and stuff like that. And I was really fortunate as well because uh, he was a goalie coach with Chicago at the time and Jeff Hackett was their goalie. And I was in Jeff Hackett's group all three years. We were basically partners. So that was an incredible experience to see the way a pro goalie worked and the details and everything, the competitiveness and 
how he, he was would. He was really intense, and we talk. It's funny. We we laugh about here in Vancouver about the Elias Pettersson death stare, Jeff Hackett's death stare to these teenage shooters when they would go high on him was hilarious. But um, all the off ice, I had the Trechek had the red book, and it was everything you need to know about goaltending on ice, off ice. Uh, my parents have a signed copy of it at their house, actually. And all the off-ice drills, like all these things, like you know, having a stick and rolling it off your hands and catching it and then doing it with a partner and hand-eye stuff. And the Russian dancing was the comment that I... Uh, don't ask me to do that here today, but my <laughs> pants are too tight. But I, uh, the, the, yeah, we do the Russian dancing and like quick feet, like side to side. And I think a lot of it, it shows you, though, Soviet-era training was in a lot of ways, like advanced, um, especially from the natural side of things. I was going to say, at, in advanced. that era over here, yeah. they just had beers and butts between Exactly. Them. And, and they, um, he brought that to this camp. And I think the biggest thing I took away that you could take forward was just how hard the high-end guys needed to work. Um, but there were the competitiveness, even, even something as simple as after the drill was over, I like pushed pucks back into the net to get them out of the way so I didn't step on them. And one of the instructors like, you crazy? Like, Vladdy sees you scoring on yourself, he's going to snap. So I'm like, I just pulled them all out and pushed them <laughs> to the side, right? Like, that competitive nature that the, the truly elite guys have, like, that carried through. And he's, I'm sure he still possesses it to this day. And I actually wore 20 in junior um, as sort of to honor Trechak. And then, um, and because I noticed Belfort started doing it in Dallas when he left Chicago. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I actually later played with Eddie. So he got 20 then. Yeah, that was, I, yeah. I wore, I wore number 20 in 1983, I think, for the same reason. I think it's, yep. it's amazing. It's, it's probably not amazing that the guy who was the best goaltender on the planet at the time, I, I believe, uh, has come up with so many people we've spoken to. Clint Malarchuk, as an NHL goaltender, went to Trechak's camp yep. with all these kids to learn. Um, Stefan Wade, goaltending coach of the Montreal Canadiens, was talking about Trechak. Marco Marciano was talking about Trechak. Yep. His influence on the game in Canada, I think, has been, been remarkable. Um, I, I'm, it's come up a number of times here about how hard the pros have to work. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it means to be a pro? We hear that phrase all the time. Kids have to learn to be a pro, and I, I'm not suggesting the eight-year-olds need to do this, but, but what does the game look like for a pro, and how dedicated are they? Well, and, and even now, compared to when I, when I finished in 2013, it, I see now, and covering the Canucks very closely, like how ready... 19-year-olds are to play professional hockey from a physical standpoint is is incredible. It's I don't know how to put it into words. I mean, you I I thought I worked hard, and then every step up the way up the ladder, you're like, wow! Like you just have your eyes opened into how hard the human body can be pushed, and how hard people can work if you really want something, and how dedicated you have to be, um, how much you have to say no, whether it's whatever, like you're, especially as a teenager and you're starting to say, hey, this is going to be what I'm going to do seriously. I'm going to start, I'm going to leave home at 16 and go live with a billet family. Like there's things you're sacrificing, obviously from a family standpoint, but also what your other friends are doing on a weekend in the summer might be different than what you're doing because you're training to get better. Um, the, and it, it's a mindset though as well to be just competitive and, and want it so badly. It's, it's a very difficult thing to put into words. Um, but I, it's funny, I, I, I coach Adam hockey and my son's going into Pee Wee next year. And what I, what I try to instill in those kids is just this professionalism in your habits. I think that's one of the biggest things too. And, and people who go and watch an NHL practice or even an AHL practice, major junior as well, 
if you haven't been around that environment, you realize quite quickly how the attention to detail is very strong. And that's, that's one thing I think that the kids could start at a very young age because it has a tremendous effect in other aspects of your life. You actually care about what you're doing and you want to do it the right way and you're going to do it the way you're instructed and actually have attention to detail. I think that would translate right through into an office setting as well and anything else you want to do. And for me, that's what, what sports become all about. Uh, obviously, I, I'm, I'm paid to analyze at the NHL level and I have a tremendous amount of fun doing that. But when I, when I think about youth sports and the value in it, it's really about being able to teach life lessons to children through something that they are very passionate about. And, and if you can bring that into it, and it's something that they want feedback on, and that lesson may work for them there, but it doesn't work in the classroom. And that's where I, I feel it's, it's incredibly powerful. And if it's, hey, you care about this, this is the way to do it. Do it the right way, and that helps you show that you care about your teammates as well. And that's, that's professionalism in the, the sporting environment, I think. We have a presentation to make to you. Oh, yeah, that's right. You mocked me for wearing the backup towel. You thought it looked ridiculous. No one was more backup than me, and I never wore one of these. Well, this yeah. is why we have to make okay. you. We figured it would, I mean, with all, all right. due respect, we figured it. We figured you needed to have one. Where'd you, it's warm. Where was it? <laughs> you don't want to know. Yeah. That's why we have an extra one. Well, I'll put it on. There we go. We get a clean one later. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Alex Ald, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. He, he rose pretty good from your car to uh, to a big stage, Woody. Like you, you did a good makeup job there uh, with with Alex Ald. Yeah, it was. Uh, hey, listen, you see, it, he's a big dude, right? Like big goalie. And uh, my car wasn't there; it wasn't very big, so uh, he squeezed in there, and we had a little more room for him at Tendy Fest. Hey, Hutch, you're like a mini Alex Ald. You shave your head. A little you're, bit, yeah. Right there, yeah. I I try and cover up that there's not much covering it up, and I was really happy <laughs> that we were sitting on chairs, so I could almost be the same height as him. Uh, we're gonna get him to voice our intros too uh, next year. Uh, congratulations uh, going out to uh, Tuka Rask, uh, Jordan Bennington, who led the Bruins and the Blues to the Stanley Cup final. But Ingle Radio, the podcast, also sends a stick tap to Oscar Dansk of the Chicago Wolves and Charlotte Checker Stopper Alex. Nadelkovich, who backstopped Vegas and Carolina's AHL clubs to the Calder Cup final. And in the Kelly Cup, gentlemen, the championship series of the ECHL, Pat Nagel and uh, Michael Garteg of Newfoundland and Toledo were the number one goaltenders uh, there. So I want to acknowledge the uh, championship series goaltenders from the uh, three levels of, uh, of professional hockey. And I'm just going to stop short there of the with the ECHL before everybody starts going uh, about all the other uh, leagues going around and, and your local men's league. Uh, our next guest uh, also didn't play uh, in the NHL like uh, Pat Nagel and Michael Garteg uh, in the ECHL. Uh, in fact, he struggles to talk about himself as a goaltender of any kind. But Pete Smith loves the position. He's an equipment designer. If you don't know his name, you certainly know his gear and his impact and his uh, contributions to the sport. His story is saturated with moments of utter disbelief. Did that really happen? Smith's start in the industry cannot be repeated today. It just couldn't happen the way he got involved in designing goaltending equipment. He's one of the most fascinating interviews that we've conducted. 
He is the lead designer at Warrior Goal, but that's only the most recent of his business cards. Here's Pete Smith on In Goal Radio, the podcast. This is wild, folks. Back on the stage with the Ingle Radio live podcast with uh, Woody, Hutch, and Millard. And uh, now bring in Pete Smith, the equipment designer for how many years have you been designing gear? Oh, around 32 now. Started when I was in high school. Were you a goalie growing up? Yes. Oops. Good start. Wow. We just lost Pete's microphone. Uh, Pete has... Uh, done a lot of work over the years with uh, various manufacturers and also had his own name on on goalie equipment with Tim Thomas uh, during the uh, his time with the Boston Bruins, right? Not quite. Tim came in, Who? Tim came in much later. During my yeah. career, the, uh, the one goalie that I was most associated with early on was uh, Tom Barrasso. He... Um, I was still in high school when I started building gloves for him. He was still with the Sabres. He went to the Penguins, and um, my leg, leg pads were available at that time, so he, he was one of the first guys to try him. And How did you get hooked up with Tom Barrasso? I had an association with the company Vic yeah. early on, and um, they had a lot of guys on the Buffalo Sabres using their sticks, so the sales rep was in there quite a bit. I don't even think Tom ever used our sticks, but the rep had access to them and showed them, I think, the gloves. And uh, Tom immediately started wearing them. And I then ended up going to college in a town that was not far from Buffalo. So I actually would go down there and, um, and see him. And I'd go home to my parents' house on Long Island on a weekend and build him something. And so it was a weird situation because I went to a school where there were lots of Sabres fans and Tom Barrasso's calling me up on the sweet telephone and, you know, <laughs> friends of mine that are Sabres fans are answering the phone and Tom Barrasso's on the other end. So that was quite interesting times, you know, where it's just such kids. And Tom, who seemed like, you know, a full-fledged adult to me, who was probably only 21 or 22 yeah. at the time. He was a serious guy, I think. Probably, I think he was always a serious guy. Very professional. But intense. Intense, but luckily I never really got the wrath of that intensity. He was amazingly good with me for a long time. We worked together for, uh, I think, around 14 years. And we certainly didn't become, like, great friends or anything, but he always was really very good to work with. Whereas someone like Tim Thomas is a much more personable person, a downright friendly person, but extremely difficult to work with compared to someone like, like, yeah, yeah, not meaningfully difficult. Just what he needed was sort of elusive. And so it was a constant quest where someone like Tom Barrasso was a guy that you get it right once. And then the key was don't change it. That's what he wanted. We've got a lot of kids here, obviously, enjoying the game today, especially out on the ice right now. I, in many ways, I think you're probably living a dream of a, of a young goaltender who, who loves all the gear they see, and, and then you started at home. Can you walk us a little bit through 
Yeah, I want to know high school guys building gear oh, for I, NHL. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's, a, it's unreal. How do, you, how do you go from there to, to where you are in the industry today? Can you walk us through a bit of it? Um, it started out, I grew up on Long Island and in the 80s playing ice hockey was cost prohibitive. It was difficult because there are a few rinks. So hockey was relatively big, but it was mostly roller hockey, deck hockey. So I played a lot of roller hockey. The equipment would get shredded. So I had to start fixing my own stuff. And I was never a great goalie. And I certainly wasn't going anywhere. And I was just obsessed with the equipment. So at some point, my dad had bought my mother a sewing machine that she literally never used once. It just sat there. So as I started repairing stuff, I started to get more insight into how the stuff was actually built. And I just got me thinking like I think I could do this so I started teaching myself how to use this sewing machine and it wasn't the type of machine that would allow you to build usable products but I would still build like little parts and I'd add them onto my chest and arm pad and that's really how it started and then growing up on Long Island because there's so much like boating and sailing there's a lot of canvas shops around and my dad was a sailor just as his hobby. And um, so he, he didn't know anything about sewing or anything like that, but he was familiar with shop, canvas shops. So we went into one and found a friendly guy who gave us a bunch of info about industrial sewing machines and all that. So the first thing I did is I took an old blocker apart and copied the parts, tried to make patterns and it, to, to me now, it seems almost impossible to think that I actually stuck with it because I was just like any other impatient kid, like did terrible in school, didn't apply myself to almost anything. But I was so obsessed with goalie equipment that the prospect of actually building something of my own. And back then, colored goalie equipment wasn't really that available yet. Right. So that was the thing that was in the back of my mind. So I could that. make colored goalie equipment, you know. So it's, it's a bizarre thing, no doubt about it. But I developed quickly. It was were your like, parents supportive? Or yeah, were extremely. they? Like much more so of this than playing hockey. Like my dad wasn't like a real team sport kind of guy. He was really into sailing. And he just didn't, wasn't that he was unsupportive, but he wasn't interested. But he's, he's a woodworker also. So the idea of crafting stuff was far more interesting to him than me playing sports. And I was also big into music, which they were supportive of that too. But um, the idea of crafting something, he was very drawn to. So he, didn't, he wasn't able to, to help me per se, other than being supportive taking me to the boat place, giving me some money. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's so much luck involved in, in everything. At least that's my, my theory on life is most things are luck. And I, I got lucky that I had parents that could help me buy the first machine and buy the first little batch of materials. Like, so... How do you go from there to, to working in the industry beyond your own so, stuff? So I started building gloves, and um, there was a local pro shop that was taking my gloves in on consignment, and the first set sold. So I built another set, and I brought them in, and the, uh, the head sales rep for Vic, 
which was a Long Island company, the U.S. half of it, they were there. The guy was there. And um, so he's checking out the gloves. and got to meet this kid. He's like, you got to come to the office. Yeah. His dad owned the company. You got to... Uh, you got to do this. So me and my dad went to the Vic office and they were one of the, the, the front runners of Asian manufacturing. They were building stuff in Taiwan. So what year is this? 1987. Okay. That is early. So like very quickly we struck up a deal. I gave them patterns and some instructions. They gave me a, a percentage and I then went off to college and received royalty checks once a month while I was in college. Fantastic. Which uh, made for some good eating, I guess, while <laughs> I was in college. So that was the beginning of it. And it made it difficult for me to really concentrate on school. I was never a good student to begin with. But having this thing kind of waiting for me back home, like I so love. Did you stop during your college years? No, I would. I would really work my hardest during college breaks. Like I would go home and I would work insane hours to try and maximize what I could get done. Vic had me fly home a couple of weekends. I think the first the first gloves I made for Barrasso, I don't know if they were the first ones, but I do remember flying home to make stuff for Barrasso. It was actually quite stressful because even though I was making these pro-level gloves, I still had an extremely small amount of experience. I was very much at the beginning of this, so I was jamming my sewing machine up to the point that it would break. So the stress of flying home and having a sewing machine break, I had no idea how to fix it. Things were, I was still screwing up making this stuff. So a lot of things were going wrong and could go wrong. And it was just, it was a lot of pressure. And I still feel a lot of pressure, even 32 years later or whatever. But, I think you went from, you know, trying to figure it out, how to, how to build equipment, to really being known as a guy who's, who innovates in the industry and then try to put your own ideas into something. I think it's just, what, what are you proudest of through that career? What innovations that you've created are you proudest of? I don't know that I'm necessarily proud of any specific innovation i think just knowing who i am and the trouble that i had applying myself to things as a kid i think i'm proud of the fact that i was able to just keep sticking with it because it really was difficult at times it was unpleasant at times it was unsuccessful a lot of times and i wouldn't have necessarily pegged myself as someone that could just keep fighting through that and I definitely did want to quit a bunch of times but somehow some way I just kept doing it and uh you know you start to build some confidence up like there's just no no replacement for experience like you don't even realize it's happening but at some point you kind of look back and I could look back now and realize that you know there's the whole 10 year or 10,000 hour thing that turned out to be true for me Around that 10-year mark is when I really started doing what most would consider very good work. And that was the beginning of things really rising up. And Because my career was quite unimpressive. Like, Tom Barrasso won those two cups using my pads. 
But that didn't lead to anything. It, things actually only got worse. So they weren't weren't a traditional pad, right? No, not at all. So the market wasn't ready for it. I don't think I was ready to run a business quite yet. It's just a lot of challenges. And so luckily, you know, I was able to just kind of scrape by for 10 years. And then, then I started working for other companies. And um, that's when the work, I think, started to really get good. And, you know, I started to work with other people. And I came to realize that that aspect of working I, I love. I'm extremely lucky now to have the guys I work with. We have just a small little goalie team at Warrior. It's uh, Neil Watts is a designer. And he's involved in all the strategizing. Kirk Allen is a product manager. He's involved in strategizing. And he's absolute expert at these kinds of events, being face-to-face with people. And then we just got a new designer about a year ago, a guy named Roger. And he's, uh, he's coming along nicely. So we have an amazing little team. We're all tight-knit. These guys are all very smart. And uh, we, we have fun just really strategizing the business like we're always thinking of how can we move this thing forward and warrior is great they uh they really let me kind of run my category like it's my own small business it's not that i have a final say on every single thing but they do kind of let me just do my thing and it's it's fun still how would you describe your equipment your philosophy um I mean, one of the catchphrases we use is uh, performance-driven innovation. And what that means is having a purpose and a meaning to everything we do. Because sometimes you come up with an idea and it seems like it could be interesting, but we force ourselves to think, what benefit will this really bring? Like if someone challenges us with a question, what does this do? We have to be able to explain it. And we use that as sort of a, a test to is this legitimate or not because it's too easy to try and do something quirky just to try and be different but then find that it doesn't actually improve the function of the product like function is everything um but function and the eye test are i mean and that's linked. and that's just a part of any consumer product your phone has to look sleek your whatever has to look good and i learned that lesson Sometime early on. The Barrasso pads are kind of well, like that. That's ex- a great point. They, they, I'm not saying they were the greatest functioning pad, but if they were the greatest functioning pad, I was still failing in, the, in terms of, is this product sellable? Is this what the customer wants? And I wasn't looking at the full picture back then. I was very narrowly focused. I was inexperienced. Now I... I would say I'm probably quite good at seeing the full picture. That's probably one of my stronger points. And, um, you know, we, our equipment is still a little bit out there. It may be a little funky for what some way? people. Just it's a little different looking. And, but it's, it's not really an issue anymore. We've, we've stuck it out again. You know, it's eight years I've been with Warrior. And um, we just keep slowly improving and we keep gaining trust with the customer. Like, it's enough years now people know that when they buy our product, they tend to not have problems with it. They tend to see improvements in their game, and it's it's just building from there. Like, 
but as a designer, you absolutely have to take all things into account. You have to take the manufacturability of it into account, which is something I definitely did not do in the early days. Um, and I, I found out pretty early on when I was still with Vic, I got to meet some of the gentlemen from the Taiwan factory and they were like, these products are very difficult to make. And like, I'd hardly made any of them. I was just making samples. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't in production. So what did I know? So, but that stuck with me. Yeah. And ever since then, I, I do try and take that into consideration. What were some of the stops along the way for between Vic and Warrior? I mean, we obviously know of, we know Smith when you did your own thing and that challenge there. Some of the steps leading up to Smith and what ultimately took you to work and, and starting your own company. So once I was done with college, and I didn't complete it, but once I was done with college, <laughs> um, I went back to my parents' house for about nine months, and that's when Smith Hockey really started. And actually, when I was still in college, Aeroflex, which was a company that did the flat face pads that Reggie Lemlin wore, and they, they were kind of floundering themselves. And so I went in, and they wanted help with some design work. So that was just a consulting job. So then I did Smith Hockey, and back then, with no internet, I had to sell to dealers, and it was almost impossible. So at some point, I started selling to Don Simmons Sports in Fort Erie, yep. and they... It was um, down, I think, didn't they? Reopening. Reopening? Yeah, I think they ended up selling it to somebody. So eventually, um, they had gear with the Simmons name on it that was being built by Bodum, another relatively smallish company outside of Toronto. And um, they just wanted a little more, uh, you know, uh, security. They didn't want to be dependent on just Bodum. So they wanted to set up their own factory. So they kind of forced me into coming to work for them to do that. And it turned out to be a good thing. Like, any time you make a move like that, you're going to learn things. I came into contact with all kinds of new people, and I learned a lot. And from there... I wasn't crazy about what I was doing, though. There was no original designing. It, that wasn't their thing. They wanted to just have products that resembled good selling products that were already out there and sell them for less. So I kind of got pulled into something that was the opposite of what my interest was. Um, so Vaughn called, and they wanted a designer. And as it turns out, he wasn't necessarily looking for someone to do modern, Vaughn. excuse me? Mike Vaughn? Yes. Yeah. He wasn't necessarily looking for me to do real modern designing either. He just needed someone to do designing. And um, so I had come with, with a prototype of, like the box pad was dead, but I was going to bring it back. <laughs> At least in my mind, I was going to bring it back. I'd been, watch, I'd been living in Buffalo while I worked in Fort Erie, so I was watching Dominic Hasek play a lot. And, you know, he's reinventing the game, but in my mind, like, the gear wasn't doing exactly what it looked like it should have been or could have been doing. So I started thinking more deeply again about what could a pad do to play that style. So I, I started messing around, and it just kind of took the form of a box pad. So I brought that with me when I went to Vaughn and so I, I kind of just tinkered with that on my own for a while and then other people in the company particularly the the guys from Vaughn Canada 
Um, some of the sales reps, local Scott, in Michigan. Scott Carter, guys like that? Yeah, well, the guys at the factory, guys like Dave Nugent, uh, uh, Collins, Kevin Collins, um, Steve Fowler, these guys would see it. Or they began to see it, and our pro rep in Michigan, uh, Brian Beals, I think his name was, they were getting excited at the prospect of a more modern pad that we could make a real splash on the market. And, you know, Mike, I think, was becoming more interested. And so, but they showed a lot of excitement. And then I think, you know, that caused Mike to get more excited about it. And um, it took off from there. It was great. I Like, that felt like a little bit of a moment of vindication, I guess, finally. What line was that? Velocity. Okay. So... It felt like a number of years of kind of knocking my head against the wall and really starting to doubt myself a lot. I definitely did not consider myself a good designer, like in those years leading up to that. I, I really don't know what I considered myself. I was just scraping by. What was your breakthrough at the Velocity then? Well, it, it addressed the the emerging style of play, like butterflying often actually starting to do some butterfly sliding. And part of what happened is early on when I got to Vaughn, Tim Thomas was playing for the Detroit Vipers, which is just 10 minutes down the road. So the pro rep brought him in, and I wasn't going to have anything to do with that meeting, but uh, Tim had mentioned that he used to wear the Vic Smith box pads in high school. So the pro rep called me over the loudspeaker, come up front. So I meet Tim and we hit it off right away. And so I show him what I'm working on and he took it with him. And the next day was a Saturday. So I went to watch him practice and he gets off the ice and he's like, you got to try this. You got to do this. You got to do that. So he became my co-test pilot. I started playing again at that point. So I was testing him and he, uh, he played an important role for sure. Like, cause he, just playing at the level he was playing at he was coming up with issues that i i wasn't going to come up with but he was one of the early butterfly sliders and that was you know that was an important eye-opening thing that i need to create pads that can effectively do that so it addressed a lot of those things and in a lot of ways a lot of what works in pads today is kind of built off of that foundation I was going to say, so for like for young goalies, these are things that they just, they're part of pads. They, they never imagined there mm -hmm. could be a pad without it. So when you're talking about Timmy, and that's the Vaughn Velocity line, again, we're talking about things like the knee stack and a pad that rotates and is designed to sort of rotate around you and have a landing area. And those things weren't, those weren't common things before that. It didn't exist at all. Ed Belfort was another guy who was uh, an innovator in a lot of ways. And he was he was trying to get his pads to land square, and he was, but he was doing it with no knee lift. So he was really just landing down on the ice. I'm really not even completely sure how he played like that. But so it's just, you know, part of succeeding at anything is keeping your eyes and ears open. And I feel like I was getting quite good at that. Like I had my own ideas, but I was really like, trying to take it all in, what were goalies doing? And it just felt like something was happening, that things had to change with goalie pads. Like they were not designed to do what goalies 
at least some goalies were now trying to do on the ice. How has that evolved for you now? Like into Smith and now with Warrior, as you said, you started playing again. So you're still on the ice now? Yep. Like how do and you, because Warriors become known, you've, you've a number of innovations since you've joined them that trends that have been copied around the league and by other companies in terms of some of the things you've come up with. Where does that process start? Where does it come from for you? Is it being on the ice? Is it just watching other guys? Is it conversations? How do you come to those ideas? I mean, all, all the guys in the goalie team at Warrior were all goalies. So we really just, we just try and think about, like, what do we want the product to do? Like, there's no thought of innovation at all. Like, innovation to me is really just a name for finding the solution to what it is you want the product to do. So that's the key. What do you want the product to do? So that just is brainstorming conversations and um, that just leads to the direction that we want to try. And, you know, as an example, just going back to the, the ritual arm pad, which is a rather mechanical, you know, the, what's the idea? Well, I don't want to feel pucks when they hit me, and I want to be able to bend my arm. All right, so how do you achieve that? So that's the, that's the beginning. I remember we, I mean, we, had, we did there, some yeah. early reviews and testing on that, and, I mean, that was incredibly unique product. And sometimes when you do something as different as that, not everybody sees it in the same light. So, so like, as an example, from there, you start to think, well, a player's shin pad has been quite a good design for a long time. You could take a very hard hit to your shin and it doesn't really hurt. So we've decided we'll try and put shin pads on your arms. And Perfect. You know, so as you go, all kinds of problems arise and that's where you end up with a very innovative product, but really all it was was a product that you kept having to find solutions for each new little problem. You tweak one little thing and it presents a new problem. Well, you just keep coming up with solutions, and the end result they call innovation. <laughs> Pads, glove, blocker, what's your favorite thing to design? Leg pads, just because they're such the big thing that you notice, and they just, the way the game is played now, it's such a big part of how you move and your puck control, which these days controlling means getting them as far away from you as you can. So, that's probably my favorite. What's uh, what's next? And I don't mean give away all the secrets, but uh, what are you hearing from from the players, from the industry, that they want? As you say, innovation is driven by making it do something. What, what do people want to yeah. see next? It is getting a little worrisome that we're heading towards a plateau because everybody's equipment, like every brand's equipment is good. They all help goalies perform better. So... And also the other thing that I think everything, everyone's coming up against, even like player sticks, everyone's been going towards lighter and lighter. There is a point where that won't be helpful anymore um, it, and it might become harmful to the perform on-ice performance. So you do have to wonder, and I don't stress about it too much because somehow between – my team and I, we keep coming up with, with ideas and a path forward. But, you know, it's every 
cycle of product development has its plateaus and we might be as an industry into that a little bit like the the products are so advanced now so i mean one of the things we try and concentrate on is doing everything right so it's not just product like the delivery the relationships with the dealers our relationships with the end customer the way we provide knowledge for the products through our marketing. Like we take all of it seriously and we try to look at it as a whole package and all of it has to work equally strong because product's not going to be mind blowing year after year. You got to have the other things that are adding the support that brings people coming back. Is there one thing on a pad or a glove that you never thought would happen? Whether no, no straps now, like leather straps or is there one thing where you go, I never thought that would ever. The, the thing that surprised me most probably in products is something that I had absolutely nothing to do with. But when skates started to become composite materials, to me it sounded like the strangest thing I had ever heard. Like it just didn't seem to make sense to me when I first heard it. I hadn't even seen one yet, but I had heard, I don't know if it was Easton maybe that was the first, but that to me seemed amazing. And it's, it, it is kind of amazing still that that's how skates are built. But I don't know. With goalie equipment, I think I'm, I've just always been too close to it. I, I can't even think of, of anything. But certainly the flat face seemed like it had come and gone. So it, it was good to see that that was able to just needed to, the time needed to be right, and it came back. Well, we're all better because of your involvement uh, from a high school student to uh, college and now uh, with Warrior. <laughs> uh, we really appreciate your innovativeness and your contributions. Thank you, Pete. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks, I appreciate Pete. it. Pete Smith, ladies and gentlemen. And thank you for joining us at 2019 Tendy Fest. Thanks to uh, Source for Sports and the Hockey Shop uh, as well. Appreciate it. Okay, I don't, I don't even know where you go off of Pete Smith and and the journey that uh, that he has enjoyed and at sometimes just simply survived. But I mean, from Tom Barrasso now to his to his current role with Warrior, boy, if uh, that was that was a real ad uh, for for the folks at the uh, the hockey shop at uh, at Tendy Fest. Uh, it, it was it was incredible. Incredible to hear him talk about uh, about those things, Hutch. Yeah, and and just a another shout out of thanks to Pete because since day one of Ingol, uh, about ten years ago, Pete was one of the first people that I spoke to, uh, even before I knew Kevin, and uh, and then he was fantastic with us when we when we first met him. So that relationship has been been there for a long time, and really thankful for uh, how open he is with us. Um, not always stuff we can share on here, but it's always been great to, to have Pete as a resource. And for me, um, you know, I grew up playing round about the same time as Pete, and I remember uh, tinkering with that gear, uh, tinkering with my upper body protection, what, what little of it there was, tinkering with my pads, uh, as many of us did back then. And so in many ways, uh, you know, Pete was living the dream uh, that many of us would have loved to live and just so impressed to see what he did at such a young age. Uh, just the fact that he shared it too. Um, yeah. not, not a guy who likes to 
uh, talk about himself yeah, true, for the most part. I mean, he's a pretty shy guy. Um, and especially when you throw a tape recorder in there and start asking him to do it on the record. Uh, but to come to Tendy Fest, to be a guest of the Hockey Shop Sorcerer Sports at Tendy Fest 4 uh, with Warrior, and to get up on a stage and do that in front of everyone else is... You know, that's, that's not his natural element, and I thought he did a really good job of it. So appreciate that, and uh, appreciate the Hockey Shop Source for Sports in Surrey uh, for having us out and flying Darren out for Tendy Fest 4. And, you know, you speak there, and you talked at the beginning, introducing Pete, that this is not a career that could happen. Um, and I think that's a perfect tie-in to the Hockey Shop, frankly. Uh, talk about a guy like Cam Matwith, who we would normally be talking to you right now for our weekly gear segment. Uh, of course, this week, the gear segment was the interview with Pete Smith, brought to you by The Hockey Shop and thehockeyshop.com. Um, so we don't get to hear from Cam today, but some similarities there. Uh, Cam is a guy who started young, was doing some goalie coaching, got involved at The Hockey Shop, um, working in the goal department, and is now like he he's he's worked his way up through his passion for the goaltending equipment to the point where he's part of the buyer's group for Source for Sports through the hockey shop, where he has a voice on industry stuff, where he's invited to the same types of factory tours that Hutch and I have been on um, with CCM, uh, with Warrior, with Bauer. He goes to the factories and he sees how it's made. And I think to me, when I think of the hockey shop, it's that passion that they have in their staff, that knowledge base, that understanding, which is why I've always gone there. Of course, I'm lucky. It's in my backyard. It's always made sense. Uh, not everyone gets that opportunity, but they've done a great job of sort of bringing that same passion and understanding of equipment to their online presence, whether it's with reviews, chats, feedback. You can check them out at thehockeyshop.com. We've talked over the past couple of weeks about the selection. They've got all the latest stuff, but to me, it's the passion and understanding. And I think talking, you've heard it in Cam. You hear it in the rest of the staff there that work in their goalie department. They play the position. They know the position. They know how to help you play the position better. And to me, there's a lot of similarities between all the guys that work there and a guy like Pete Smith. And it's the passion for goaltending. And that's why I'd recommend you check out the Hockey Shop Source for Sports in Surrey or check them out at thehockeyshop.com. I did. In fact, I ordered two cages uh, through thehockeyshop.com. So uh, that's... Uh... Uh, you guys have me just hooked on that thing. I, I, I'm always on the hockeyshop.com reading uh, reading the reviews. I flip back and forth between the ingoal.com uh, and the uh, <laughs> ingoalmagazine.com and, and, and the hockeyshop.com. It's it's now what I do. Uh, you, you guys have uh, have got me hooked. The flat face pad like that uh, that that was Pete Smith, right? The box pad, that as was, he calls it. Yeah, the Way box pad. Sorry, ahead of yeah. his time. I'm, I'm working on my terminology. Thanks <laughs> for bearing with me. The, co the concept of it. Concept yeah. of a landing gear and an e-stack and a pad that rotates and butterfly and drop. He played a role in a lot of that stuff. Absolutely, as he talked about. And and the relationship with Tim Thomas, it's just just wild. But that that whole thing with Tom Barrasso, crazy. Absolutely out of this world, crazy. Well, and, uh, and don't forget which, Barrasso himself went don't forget Barrasso himself went straight from playing for his high school hockey team to playing for the Buffalo Sabres. Similar right. fascinating story. I think there's a lesson here too, boys. Like Pete What's was that? awesome. Sonia DiBiase from CCM on our first ever podcast, episode one. Just similar levels of awesome. We gotta we gotta make sure we dig into the archives and find the uh, 
the sort of the OGs of uh, goalie yeah. design in the industry. Make sure we get more of them on here on the podcast. We'll Who do you want to hear from? Who do you want to hear from next? Let us know at well, podcast you know what? at ingoldmag.com. I was reading uh they're not very uh they're not very uh, involved in in the National Hockey League anymore, but Kineski at at one point had every goaltender wearing their gear. Uh, they're making a bit of a comeback, but Pops Kineski uh in in the late 60s had had every goaltender wearing that stuff so uh god rest his soul uh so we uh we're gonna switch gears uh and and get to the uh to the off ice and and the recovery part of things and uh stefan singlet is a guy that that makes you feel better uh not 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 mentally but fixes your body and uh we'll we'll set up uh stefan in this way and let him describe exactly how he approaches his job and just the the path that we're on right now when it comes to concussions as Stefan Singlet joins us uh, from Tendy Fest with Kevin Woodley, David Hutchison and Darren Millard on Ingold Radio the podcast. Back here on stage with the Ingold Radio podcast. Darren Millard, Kevin Woodley, Dave Hutchinson, Stefan. You can look at him too. Okay. <laughs> uh, so Stefan Singlet, you're a physiotherapist. You're a chiropractor. You're uh, a sous chef. You're. Uh, uh, tell us what what are you and and how do you help athletes? Um, I'm a chiropractor by title, but uh, as I was saying to Kev, and like Kev knows me quite well. I'm always trying to learn other stuff. So I'm doing courses on nutrition. I do vestibular courses through the Physiotherapy Association. I have gone and done strength training courses with um, Charles Poliquin, who passed away last year, but he used to work with a ton of NHL players and was probably one of the most brilliant <clears throat> brilliant men I've met over the years. But anybody that can teach me anything, I'm always wanting to learn and try to incorporate it into my practice because all those things help people get better. So between strained hamstring to concussion to backache to you sore knee, you do it all? Everything. Everything. And, I mean, over the years, I've, and Kevin knows this, I've started doing more and more stuff with concussion. And it was nothing that I had intended to get involved in, but it, it, it just kind of evolved into that. Because uh, years ago, when I started practice... Um, there was no treatment at all for concussion. It was still dark room, rest, you know, don't go outside. And um, I would treat people that had post-concussion syndrome and you'd do some stuff and they'd get better. And then you'd get harder people and you'd have to go learn more techniques and more different therapies in order to help them. And it just kind of evolved where I was treating a lot of people with post-concussion syndrome. And now... As we've moved to today, like it's pretty well known that the first thing you want to do is get therapy. Like the la- the worst thing you can do is nothing, because when you're sitting in a dark room doing nothing, you start to get depression and anxiety. So there's so much more out there um, for treatment, and there's different types of treatment depending on what type of symptoms you have. And and obviously, as, as Stefan mentioned, actually, I, I think we should also say, like, he fits, not only has he fixed my brain, although that's kind of a stretch because there may not be that much up there, um, but his other tie to the goalie community is his brother's the goaltending coach for the Calgary Flames. So he fits this environment both in terms of having goaltending in the family, but also 
he's fixed a bunch of us and he's kind of modest. We're not going to talk about specific cases, but you walk into their office at Catalyst Kinetics and it's just jerseys and thank you notes from the NHL and pro leagues in Europe, a lot of personalized messages. Some of them saying, thanks, I don't know what you did, but thanks for saving my career, that type of stuff. Um, for me, after having a decade of migraines after multiple concussions, then having another concussion and being five months of misery, I was referred to these guys. And I remember the first, which was Don Grant the first time who, who works with you guys. I remember leaving there and my face tingled like for hours. And it was literally like lights had been turned back on. To me, the dark room that we still get if we go into emergency, the wait till the symptoms subside, people don't seem to recognize there are treatments. And like you said, different treatments. I know different goalies I've talked to over the years, you're working on their jaw, you're in their mouth, it's neck. What, what is it that sort of drives this option as a treatment? Can you explain it in any terms that our audience is going to be able to sort of cling to or understand simply? There's kind of like... I should get my brother to give you a couple lessons, though, because he yeah, talks in. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, there. I just usually when I just blame you, I say he hasn't adjusted me right. So um, There's essentially like there's three types of post-concussion or concussion, let's say, symptoms. So the first one is kind of mechanical. So it's like, say, head, neck, um, how the soft tissue is. And I think that's like the, the first thing that has to be treated. The second part is vestibular. So that's your eyes, your inner ear. It's the balance portion of your brain. And so I kind of think of that as like a software program. So if you don't fix the hardware first, it's hard to run good software. So a lot of people that do concussion treatment or go for treatment for post-concussion, a lot of it is vestibular therapy. So you're like looking at targets and you're shaking your head up and down or left and right and you're doing spins and looking at X's and um, and it's really, really important, but if it's done at the wrong time, it doesn't work. So, so a lot of times when people get concussed, they have whiplash in their neck. And if the neck muscles don't work properly or there's tears in like the, the base of the skull and you're moving your head around trying to fix a vestibular issue, you end up making it worse. And so those people, they struggle to get better. And then the third type, of uh, post-concussion that we see is um, called physiological. So people that have had concussion symptoms for a long time, they start to get hormonal changes. And there's a, a doctor out of the US named Mark Gordon that did a lot of work with the military. And he f started to find guys that were in blast trauma, were having like low testosterone, high estrogen, because part of the brain has been affected from the, the, the trauma. So there's blood tests that you can do and you can find these issues. So there was a hockey player earlier this year, he was concussed, post-concussion, he had headaches, uh, kind of some vestibular issues, that all got treated and he was better, he had nothing, nothing physical like that, but he was still dealing with um, anxiety and panic attacks. So I suggest let's you know, do the blood work, let's test it. And it showed that he had low testosterone and he was converting his testosterone to estrogen. So no wonder he felt... This is a national, like, like high-end, yeah. we won't name names, but this is an elite athlete. Yeah. And he's creating estrogen after a concussion. Yeah. So, and for him, it's difficult because 
a lot of the treatment that you would do for like you or me you can't do with them because some of the treatment is considered performance enhancing because of what you'd be using to treat it. So we had to do it the long, slow way, but it got better, everything got normal, anxiety went away, and it feels great now. And the blood le- you're testing blood levels throughout, you're seeing those changes yeah. hormonally as he's getting better. Yeah. So does, does it start with the mechanical stuff? Like, is that the first step, like you said, when you talk about the hardware before the software? Yeah, always. I always start with, I go through all the, all the mechanical stuff first, and then maybe after a week, maybe two weeks, then I'll start to look at the vestibular stuff and see, because a lot of times fixing the mechanical stuff will fix everything else. But I always do it in that order, mechanical, vestibular, and then if somebody's still not getting better or they just still don't feel right, then we go down that hormone route. How many times have you run into guys who have something where they're complaining? We've seen this at camps um, with pro goalies where, you know, my hip is always bugging me. And then you run a full test and it's something in the neck and you're treating up here and they end up feeling better down there. Like, yeah, you see a lot of that? 100%. It all ties together, right? Like, every, everything starts top down. So, and I always, like, try to treat the whole person. If you come in... With a foot issue, you know, I'm looking at your pelvis, I'm looking at your knee, I'm looking at your hip, and a, and a good therapist should do that. They shouldn't be just looking where the pain is, because pain is not always your, not the best indicator of what, why something hurts. It's like, why, like, figure out where it's coming from, and then you treat the whole person, and a lot of times those symptoms disappear, and so you start to create function back. And so... Yeah, if you came in, doesn't matter what you come in with, I'm always going to look head and neck and pelvis. They're part of every single visit with me. Unless I come in and just say, I can't stop the puck, and then you just look at me like... <laughs> just show you yeah, video. Yeah, we know, we know. He scored a few goals on me, folks. You should see That's how angry that. he gets when he, when he gets scored on. Oh, like, you uh, should see uh, how angry he gets on a podcast when the audio's not... <laughs> he's right telling right. me, he's like, all oh, these new pads. He's like, these new pads are not broken it's in always yet. A everything's going, reason, everything's going through his five I don't come with an excuse. What have I got? But <laughs> you had a good one. Yeah, well, they... Um, they call me dad on the podcast because I, I, I think it's because I always pull out the, the goalie dad card. And it's because you're old. My son just walked in over there after being out on the ice. I, I'd, I'd like to know um, a few things from the perspective of a parent, but I think the first one we, you brought up earlier is uh, why do we feel like we're seeing so many more concussions in youth hockey and sport in general? I think there's two reasons, and in my, my own opinion, there's two reasons. We are better at diagnosing and seeing it, and um, and there's like more and more tests coming out and, and um, more aware, awareness through coaches and athletes themselves too. But I think the, the thing that people don't talk about is that like, if you think about it, like if, a, if you're a taxi cab driver and you're driving on the street all the time, you have an increased chance of being in a car accident. So I think it, with kids today that they're, some kids are playing, are on the ice more than most NHL, NHL players. They're playing winter hockey, they're playing spring hockey, they're playing summer hockey. And, so, and they're playing so many games that the exposure like, to being hit and concussed goes up. There's, a lot of, there's no off-season for some, some of these kids. Like Kids come in, they've played like 120, 130 games in a year. Yeah. So your risk goes up just because of how much exposure you are to the ice. And... and I mean, we talk about nutrition is a big thing. Like, kids need proper nutrition if they're they're competing at that level all the time. And if you have like nutrient deficits, um, it 
opens you up to be more chance to being injured. So I think that's a really, I mean, I know when I played hockey, like, well, I mean, still play hockey, but I know when I played competitively, I mean, there was an off season, like there was time to rest and that, like, that's a, a really important thing. And I think it kind of gets overlooked today with a lot of youth hockey. So recommendations coming out of that though, what, what are you saying to youth, youth parents and youth hockey players? If they need to change, play less. Have a little, have a some, some downtime. Yeah, I was at the the Burnaby Winter Club the other day, and I had to laugh because there was a sign, and uh, I hadn't been there in years. It says, "Your kid doesn't play for the Canucks." Yeah, and I thought it was kind of funny, like just reminding parents that you know, kids need to be kids sometimes too, and be doing other other sports. Just be. What do you think about what youth associations are doing today? Uh, are they doing enough? Are they doing the right things? I mean, we hear about uh, you got to have your preseason concussion testing so that we know where things are later. Is that the right protocol? I, I have no problem do? with that. Yeah. The thing is, is that you can, a lot of those baseline, I mean, we do baseline testing at the office as well, but guys can pass baseline tests and still have symptoms. So the the baseline testing does a lot of like visual and like uh, like uh, a lot of probably more on the vestibular side of things so you could have no vestibular issues past the baseline but still have like headaches neck pain you know other issues so it it, it just gives you like it gives some parents some peace of mind but eh, i'm not a there's no there's no perfect test yet um i know they're doing there's some research of a group out in surrey that's trying to to um, a new device for treating and, and uh, testing for concussion, but it's like it's still really, really early stage. Do children need more time after concussion than an adult, or uh, nah? Uh, you know, there's no real timeline. Sometimes I think you know I see somebody and they've kids, had kids heal bones and bruises faster. They do usually. Yeah, but. It, it all it's not like there's so many factors that are involved like you know like nutrition is a big thing if kids have are not getting enough protein enough minerals in their diet and they're training and training and training it takes them longer to get better um, I'm big on nutrition with kids and like getting you know proper like amino acids proper proteins and zinc. like zinc zinc is huge especially for boys because zinc increases testosterone levels and it helps uh, it helps with almost every single thing on the body. You cut Kevin's down then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever accused him of having too much testosterone. It's oh, <laughs> really getting personal up here. <laughs> I, I'm, from a goaltending aspect, it used to be groins or knees, uh, then hips, uh, concussions, but what what part of the modern game taxes the body the most? The modern game for goaltender? Mm. What type of injuries would you see from, from goaltending now? Lots of shoulders. I see a lot of goaltender shoulders. Well, Kev got ran. Somebody took him out in the net. So concussion, neck injury. I think it's... I think we do. A, I think you're seeing a better job of guys taking care of their groins. Like I don't think you see as many. No, you don't see as much as you used to. But I mean, a big thing like you see a lot of groin injuries at the beginning of the season, and you see it a lot in in skaters. And I I I think the reason for that is um, 
because guys like when they train during the summer, they it, I think it has to do a lot with foot position. So when you're training, you're doing your squats, your deadlifts, you're a lot of it's like toes straight, and when you're walking, you're training like feet feet are straight. And then when you go into skates, and like I like to my athletes to use like the super feet inserts into their skates because skating is an unnatural position, so it's a toe out position, so it causes that arch to drop there. And that whole sling of muscles, it actually, I think it goes up to affect the groin. And I, th I think that's why you see them at the beginning of the season, just because, and I think it would be very preventable just by having an insert in the skate. So super feet in the skates, not in your shoes or anything? No, because you should, if you're, you should be able to have like strong arches just by like walking barefoot and moving around properly. But Is like there... skiing, skating, even soccer, I like soccer players to to have an insert in there too because it's like again it's a foot out position holding the like handling the ball so we've we've talked a whole range of things here and <laughs> other than other than play a little bit less which i think is tough for all of us parents uh do you have one takeaway for the goalie parents that are listening or watching today that you could just say i wish you'd do this one thing with your kid to make things a little bit better whether that's a nutritional specific nutritional recommendation a specific training recommendation a treatment one what's uh what can we do for our kids? That's a really hard question to answer, yeah, actually. Well, the, the first answer is don't play with this guy and yeah. his skates because then you get run and you got to go yeah. see him for a fix later. <laughs> just generating um, business. I think with, like, with kids, the biggest thing I see with, with young kids and injuries is a lot of it is just eat better. Eat better. Get a lot of sleep, like, sleep properly. Yeah. Like, if you eat well and sleep, that goes so far with everything in sport and um just preventing like preventing injuries like if you're fatigued you know you're not sleeping enough you're playing video games all night and you go to play hockey and things are coming at you i mean it just increases your chances of getting hurt in any sport but like just simple things that i think we lose sight of at times has this been painful for you <laughs> this hasn't been as bad as i thought <laughs> This might be the greatest endorsement we've ever had. Uh, Stefan Singlet, uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, guys. Just, just one more quick one. Where can people, because I think the one takeaway for me of meeting you is there is treatment available. If you have a concussion, dark room, and the stuff you get in an emergency room isn't there. So where the, can they find you and Catalyst Kinetics? And yeah. you've got a team. It's yeah, we not, a whole, you can't get you. There's other guys. Yeah, that we have a help. whole facility. We have like, I think we have close to 40 people at our, at our um, clinic now. And we have like chiropractors, physiotherapists, naturopaths, um, personal trainers, and everybody's working together, like in, truly integrated, trying to get people better, no matter what the injury is. And we're actually just five minutes away. We're just up in Burnaby here. And yeah, Catalyst Kinetics. Yeah, I was going to say, and it's not just sports. Uh, our photographer at Ingle Magazine for uh, the Vancouver Canucks is a, a police officer in his okay. full-time day job. Derek Kane hit, had a car accident. Yep. I remember him talking to me weeks later, still having headaches. Sends him to you, never felt better. Yeah. So it, there is treatment out there, folks. You can get it. And for sure. he's one of the guys that will help you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, perfect. Thanks for, thanks for doing this with thanks, us. Guys. Thanks, guys. Have a Stefan Segalet. Stefan who, uh, who fixes bodies and takes care of Kevin Woodley. Is that a full-time job, taking <laughs> care of you? <laughs> Pretty close. I I swear, like no sooner does he chirp me on the podcast. Next skate he comes out to is this last Friday. He hasn't been out much this year. He's got he's, he's moving. He's got two young kids. Um, 
First time I've been out with them for a while. And after all that, not only do I suck and have a little temper tantrum, but in the last five minutes of the game, someone skates through my head as I cover a puck and my arm goes totally numb like a stinger. Like just an absolute travesty. And every time I'm around him, I end up needing to have everything adjusted by him. So, you know, I, I, I can't even chirp him, chirp him back because like a week later, it all happens again. So it's, you know, there's truth to it, I guess. So thank, thank God I have Siggy in my corner. That's all I can say. You tossed a tantrum. Yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a full, it wasn't snaptastic. I was just a little frustrated. I, I, I had a rather rough outing. I had a Darren Millard ask after listening to Kevin Woodley <laughs> level of outing and, um, in part because Siggy was there and he chirped me. I wanted to play a little better. Uh, I, I let it get the best of me and was frustrated. So what I need to do is make sure I take good notes uh, when I go to the conference with Pete Fry and John yes. Stevenson on June 23rd in Vancouver so that I can learn to control my temper and focus on the next shot rather than swearing profusely and slamming my stick because the last one went in. Yes, good Good, good work. That's progress right there. If, uh, if they can fix you, Woody, that we know they're pros. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what's up, Woody? What you, you're, uh, you're traveling this week. Yeah, off to Calgary for Hockey Canada's Program of Excellence goaltending camp. Um, Going to be working as a consultant video sort of video guy. Nothing fancy, just guy running a camera and cutting some tape for the guys. Um, on the ice uh, with the under-20 guys. It's got kind of candidates, goaltenders who are in the mix to be on the world junior team next year. Um, some of the names that you'll see at the draft, obviously, on there. Some that have already been drafted, uh, including uh, Alexis Gravel, who was in the Memorial Cup. Actually, I worked at this camp with him two years ago. Uh, Olivier Rodrigue of the Oilers. Um, but I think more for us and for our listeners in terms of questions pretty good list of coaches here guys so going to be an opportunity to grab some interviews on the podcast i see along i'm listed as a goaltending consultant and so is michael di pietro i don't know if it's confirmed if he's actually going to make it because of the ankle injury and whether he can fly um, but there's a good chance we'll have di pietro there among the goalie coaches uh, fred brathwaite's there uh, Scott Murray of the Washington Capitals, Dustin Schwartz of the Edmonton Oilers, uh, Jason LaBarbera is going to be there. He's, he's coaching in the Western Hockey League with Calgary right now, and obviously longtime NHLer and just an absolute beauty of a human uh, and some great stories. And some of the other names, Lyle Mast is there running it, and Danny Sabrin, Sabu, oh, yeah. who I covered with the Canucks. Turned into he's turned into a really good coach since he started coaching, having a lot of success in the QMJHL. But more importantly, if we get him on the podcast, I want to get the real story behind Luongo's bathroom break. Remember that in Anaheim? I he had was, his. Uh, he so was the guy. Well. I that, had his pro return pads a few years ago. Oh, you see now you got to send me a picture, and that's a good reminder that yeah. everybody else that list of names we just rattled off, along with John Stevenson potentially being a candidate for the podcast next week. We're just trying to iron out a time because. We are traveling. So a couple of us are traveling this week. Uh, those are all the candidates for guests over the next couple of weeks, which means get your questions in now. Hutch, where do people send them? Podcast at ingolmag.com. Send your questions to podcast at ingolmag.com. And I do actually go through all those questions and spent quite a bit of time tonight answering a few folks. Uh, it's It's great to get the questions in, and uh, we'll do our best to respond. And And if we can get some of them on the air, we'll do that too. 
Yes, uh, please. Uh, there's not a question that uh, that is uh, too simple or uh, too complicated for us. So we we have lots of width uh, that uh, that we can cover off things. We have plenty of reach. After all, uh, we, we we delved into the do you stop pucks and prevent goals? I thought we did a bang up job on that. Uh, <laughs> I can actually hear you rolling your eyes right now. <laughs> Well, <laughs> things get stuck up there, you know, in, in the back of my mind. Uh, thanks to uh, Alex Alt, uh, Pete Smith, and uh, Stefan Singlet, and to you, the listener, uh, who uh, is so dedicated and so involved in, in this great position of goaltending and this so uh, wonderful sport of hockey. Uh, we look forward to bringing you uh, more intriguing news from the world of goaltending, like off-ice resets uh the mind part of things uh, the psychologist uh, angle as we expand uh, our reach in in goal radio the podcast for david hutchison kevin woodley i'm darren millard keep your stick in the ice your heel down and your toe up and make sure you wind up that window